1: Hello, welcome to She Done It. My name is Guy Cuthbertson. I am husband of Caroline Crampton, and I am going to be interviewing Caroline today because this is a special episode celebrating the fact that She Done It is reaching its third birthday. So we're going to be talking about three years of making this wonderful podcast, three years of me living with Caroline in a world of detective fiction, as books pile up on the stairs and in the bedroom and 3 years of caroline learning how to commit the most perfect murder. Caroline, would you like to tell us about how and why she done it got going?
0: Well, I think it started with me reading Martin Edwards's book The Golden Age of Murder about three times in the space of three months and just thinking that he'd done a really really good job of synthesizing a lot of very nerdy detail about a genre i was really interested in with an approach that made it completely readable to someone who didn't know anything about the more obscure writers of the period and that set a light bulb off in my head really because i thought oh hang on so it is possible to do something that is both incredibly niche and with mass appeal. And that's really where the idea came from, I suppose.
1: Right. So after three years, do you now have a very good idea about how to murder your husband?
0: (laughs) I would say the opposite, really, in that the amount of reading and thinking I do about detective fiction has shown me that you can't get away with these things. I think The idea that there are just unsolved and undetected murders going on all the time, either in the period that I talk about or now, it's just not true. I think you just always get found out.
1: That's a very optimistic outlook. Do you think that you would be a good detective?
0: I think I would think I was a good detective. I think there's a a slight difference. I think I would be one of those overconfident, bumptious characters on a TV show who strides around making nonsensical deductions based on particles of dust on windowsills that actually turn out to be not relevant at all. I think I would enjoy myself greatly. I am not sure I would be hugely good at it. And my few experiences with things like murder mystery dinner parties or board games or whatever have shown that I do not have some uh, preternatural inclination that makes me really good.
1: So... At least one of your listeners, though, has assumed that you would be a good detective because they have asked who would be the Hastings to your Poirot.
0: Yes, they've very kindly cast me in the role of Poirot in this scenario. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I think maybe I am a Hastings, truly.
1: O- only in the stories every so often and occasionally <laughs> um, acting as sidekick, but not always.
0: But not always. And also in the instance of the novel Dumb Witness, more interested in the dog than the people. Yes, but let's just imagine for a second that I could be a Poirot, and I'm going to say that you would be my Hastings.
1: Right, very good. It's an easy answer. Yeah. Um, and what about Morris the dog? Would be he make a good dog detective?
0: Yes, I think Morris would make a good Uh, He would make a good show of being a detective. We say this often right? when we're out walking that Morris is very good at running around with his nose to the ground, looking like he knows what he's doing. The number of times he's actually caught a squirrel or, uh, you know, found a missing item or something are, I think, zero.
1: But if the murder weapon was a tennis ball (laughs) and someone had hidden it in a hedge, then he would be very good. Yes. And if you had to find the nearest body of water, he'd be very good. And he has a very good memory for things that are important to him, Mm -hmm. such as where he found a biscuit or people he likes, etc. Yes,
0: he will stop at the same railings in our village every time because he has in the past received a biscuit by those railings.
1: Yes, so he could be used. I think I wouldn't entirely rely on him, but Morris has a part to play, which is reassuring. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) It was worth getting a dog after all. (laughs) So, good. Let's move on then. Um, So, Caroline, what would you say have been the highlights of she Done It so far? Just name, say, three particularly uh, memorable things or things you've learned during the course of your time doing it.
0: Well, I really enjoyed doing the live episode at the Dublin Podcast Festival in twenty nineteen. That was the first time I'd really seen she done it listeners in real life. And so that was really, really good. I very much enjoyed going to the pub with them afterwards and talking about the novels that they were reading and meeting someone who worked at a bookshop in Dublin came and we talked about what crime fiction she stocked and you know it was just a, a really nice in-person version of doing the podcast which is quite a sort of solitary experience on my end you know I do it by myself in a cupboard a lot of the time so that was good and um...
1: so in terms of the the travel obviously yes most of she done it is produced at home in a cupboard if people didn't realize that it is the very nice walk-in wardrobe attached to our bedroom uh, which is soon to be redecorated which is very exciting um but there are the chances to go out and about, to sometimes interview people off-site, and also we've done a little bit of visiting uh, places associated with detective fiction. For instance, we went to Wallingford, um, partly for my purposes, but while we were there, we also did some Agatha Christie uh, Literary Association stuff, Um do you find that useful, interesting? Would you like to do more of that kind of thing?
0: Well, it's a bit difficult because I personally find it interesting, just as a enthusiast and fan of these writers. It's quite hard to translate you going to a place and looking at a thing into audio that is then enjoyable for people who are not at that place to listen to. So I'd say actually, in answer to your previous question, a second highlight was the episodes I did about the Florence Maybrick case which if people haven't heard that was a famous arsenic poisoning case and trial in Liverpool which is near where we live and the house where it all happened is still there, it's still a residential home. So although it was a bit difficult to work out a way in which I could incorporate visiting the site into the episode I did a in the end record myself going for a trip to look at it so if you listen to the episode you sort of can hear me on the train and then you can hear me walking and all this kind of stuff so hopefully that adds texture and interest so I did really enjoy it that was a definite highlight getting to do that just because it was easy and approachable from where we live and then I did actually subsequently get asked to be in a television show that filmed inside the house so I got to see inside it although that's not on the episode but I believe it's still on iPlayer so if you're in the uk and can access iPlayer you can find it on i think the program's called murder my family and me or some version of that
1: very good and sometimes these things happen by accident so we were down in somerset weren't we and we ended up by chance going through uh road wasn't it as in the road hill murder
0: that's right yeah and it happened to be the in between because i i make the episodes at least a week ahead of when you hear them often more we happened to be there the weekend in between me having already sent the episode off to be edited but it not having come out yet so I was right sort of at my peak knowledge (laughs) of what happened in that case and we happened to be driving through that place so we stopped to take some pictures
1: yes but I do get your point about trying to record places and if you're not careful you end up doing the bad radio Four documentary thing of beginning with crunching gravel yeah Lots of crunching gravel and then, hello, I am standing outside, blah, blah, blah. Whether you are or not is not entirely um, clear. Um, but you may just be in a sound effects studio with a with a small tray of gravel that you're <laughs> crunching. Um, but yes, it's classic attempts to go outside for outside broadcasts um, and some birdsong. And then you have to interview someone in, in a whistling gale to show that you're being active and you've got off your chair and have stepped outside
0: yes so I haven't done a huge amount of that just because it is a radio or audio cliche and I'm not sure that it in my case adds a lot you know so I yeah mostly I'm just in the house in the
1: cupboard good well not good but it is nice to um, (laughs) see you in there working away and of course the um, scenario for us during coronavirus is that we've both been working from home We've both been working from home, so um, we've got used to uh, living in a small house but managing to produce podcasts and do our jobs and all sorts um, and supply tea to each other (laughs) and uh, pat the dog and all the usual domestic life. So um, are there any other highlights or memories from She Done It that you would like to pluck out of the air? I should say, none of this has been scripted, by the way, as you can tell. So I'm asking her uh, uh, without her having had the chance to prepare these answers.
0: I think probably having part of a She Done episode played on Radio New Zealand was a particular highlight. They have the sort of public broadcaster there they have a, a radio show where they play bits of interesting podcasts that they've come across and talk to the people who who made them and someone from that show reached out to me to ask if they could include some of She Done It and that was really exciting because you know never been to New Zealand probably will never go to the New Zealand it's a really long way away but after it played there I noticed a definite uptick in the number of People from New Zealand who were listening and commenting and following the podcast. And yeah, that was really exciting to connect with people from a place that I have no personal connection.
1: So you do have quite a a close relationship, shall we say, with your listeners for She Done It. Um, Lots of people writing to you, sending things in the post sometimes, um, often discussing favourite books, people asking, Have you read XYZ? so, it's not just been a podcast, it's been a, a friendship group in some ways. And there have been people who um, have become friends through the world of detective fiction.
0: Yes, definitely. And, you know, I've made the most of that in one sense by choosing to go the route of having the She Done It book club as the main way that the podcast supports itself. So, you know, those are the several hundred most dedicated fans who I talk to often most days uh, in the 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 club forum but even beyond that in the wider listenership of people who just listen to the the free podcast people email me to tell me that they bought a book that I mentioned on the show and they've read it and they've enjoyed it and what do I think they should read next that kind of thing all the time so yes it's really nice to have a productive thing to connect with People, because I've I've done podcasts before, I've done sort of media things before, where people write to you, but they there isn't really then a way of continuing the conversation. They they write to you, and it's lovely, you know, they write to you to say I really enjoy your podcast, but then there's not really then a next thing I can say back that keeps the conversation going. Whereas with she done it, because we all have this shared interest in these books, it feels much more natural and it flows more easily.
1: Yes, yes. So if we now try to think about She Done It at Home, being recorded in this house that we share, one of the ongoing battles that we've had is trying to find enough space in this little house for all of your detective books, which uh, seem to be delivered by the postman on a daily basis. (laughs) So could you just say a little bit about what your policy is regarding which ones you keep, which ones go to the charity shop? which books you would like to acquire and which ones you are quite happy leaving in the public library.
0: So I think my top level criteria is the ones I want to own are the ones from the actual period that she done it covers. So 1920s, 30s, 40s. I do read some modern crime fiction, sometimes to get an angle on an episode or because I'm going to interview the writer, but I don't often then keep hold of those books because I'm not going to refer back to them or need to find them again for a quotation. And if I am, they're fairly easily accessible online quickly. The ones that I like to keep and hoard and look at are the ones from the actual period that are very difficult to get hold of any other way. So when you find a secondhand That's it. That's the only way you can read that book, and yes. So writers like Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers, and a few others who were really terrifically popular at the time and have stayed so popular. You know, there are loads and loads of copies of, and then there were none in many millions of different editions and so on. Uh, Somebody like uh, E. C. R. Lorac, the ones that have not been republished by the British Library. There are no copies of those or barely any. So they're really expensive and quite old and quite valuable and quite rare. So things like that are the kind of things that if I had unlimited budget to spend on this kind of thing, I would want to make a collection of original Collins Crime Club, ECR Loric, for instance.
1: So why do you think these books have remained out of print? The fact that they're so expensive would suggest that uh, people do want them and they They are great books, some of these, the Loric books I know you really enjoy. Is there any sense that you've acquired of why some books have remained in print always? Some have been returned to the public eye through the British Library uh, reprints and others have just been left to um, exist as very expensive copies on eBay.
0: So I've asked lots of different people this question in the course of doing the podcast and there are a few themes that emerge but I don't think there's any one obvious answer. One of the main reasons is just that for people a substantial chunk in the middle to late part of the 20th century, the golden age style of murder mystery was really unfashionable in publishing. You know, everything was about being gritty and police procedurals and uh, thrillers and, you know, serial killer thrillers were really popular in the 80s and 90s. People got really interested in gory contemporary true crime and they wanted something Equivalent in their crime fiction, and you know I've heard people say. I think Martin Edwards said to me once that uh, you know in the eighties and nineties you could barely get a Golden Age style murder mystery published, let alone convince anyone to republish one from the original period, which obviously now seems really remote from us. When you know Richard Osman's books, which are clearly Golden Age murder mystery inspired are now breaking records for selling millions of copies in their first week and all this kind of thing.
1: I mean and also the 80s and 90s was a golden age for golden age adaptation. Yeah. So obviously the Great Joan Hicks and Marples and the uh Poirot's. So was there a sense that people were getting all their golden age fiction through the tv and therefore there wasn't much space then for producing novels as well
0: i think there is a bit of that but i also think another major thing about publishing that i've come to learn is that it's incredibly uh, name driven so agatha christie has never been out of print and her adaptations have only driven more popularity to her books and thus more adaptations and round and round it goes whereas I mean I'd say of the writers from the period I often talk about Dorothy L Sayers as being sort of next down from Christie in terms of enduring popularity. There's only been I think two attempts to make a Peter Whimsy TV show and neither of them ran for a long time or are that easy to find on streaming services so there's a vast difference even between those two and then when you get down even further to someone like ECR Lurrock who was very popular well, popular enough to sustain a full-time writing career during her own life and who then just never got reprinted after her death and therefore 50 years have gone by. No TV adaptations, no plays, no audio adaptations. Even if you could know that these books existed, it would be very difficult to get hold of one. And this is something else that talking to, you know, fans who are older than me, they say how even the last 10-15 years of the, the internet becoming... The way every kind of business and aspect of life is transacted has changed this enormously. Just because, like my friend Moira has talked about how she used to uh, carry around a notebook with her at all times in which she had handwritten a list of detective novels she wanted based on her reading other nonfiction in the genre and bibliographies and things. And any time she saw a bookshop, anywhere she was, she would go in and look for anything on her list. That's so labour intensive and takes so long. Whereas now she could have just typed her list into Google yes. and find out everything about these books and where they are and who has them. So I think that's also contributed to the you know change in republication.
1: So the same applies to uh, adaptations for TV and film as mm. well. It used to be very hard to get hold of old copies of BBC adaptations from the 70s and so forth. And now they're on YouTube or they're on um some other uh uh, iplayer type service so there's actually there are lots of people now enjoying old golden age adaptations from 70s and 80s Mm. which they did not see at the time for which they've now been able to get hold of and we recently watched a miss marple that had been remastered one of the 80s ones yes that looks so much better and was so much more enjoyable now that it actually had proper colour and didn't look like it was in kind of um, variations of brown and grey, which is what the uh, 80s uh, BBC Joan Hicks and Marples tended to look like.
0: Yes, no, that was really good. That I think that was the moving finger that they've they've done. And it was on iPlayer. We do have a DVD box set, but it, the quality is distractingly bad.
1: And in a way that is, um contributed to some people's ideas of these programs as being a little bit kind of old-fashioned or uh, dull almost. Mm. And it did make quite a change to see them in in Technicolor. Yes. So we also recently saw the 1974 film of Murder on the Orient Express, which you had not seen before, with Albert Finney as Poirot. Now, that in itself is quite amusing, given that Finney made his name through kind of British New Wave cinema with gritty northern mm. working class uh, films, some great ones in the 60s. And then there he is playing the Belgian detective. So how did you find that?
0: I really enjoyed it. I I thought it was really good. His Poirot is obviously nothing like the David Suchet Poirot, which I think for a lot of people has become... The default. His Poirot is a lot more volatile and impatient and eccentric. But I know Agatha Christie famously said that she really liked the Finney portrayal, or she liked it better than any other one that she'd seen. And she famously did not like how anybody played Poirot. And I could sort of see what she meant because I think he is meant to be a bit of a agent of chaos at times in the stories, and making him too neat and too mannered and too polite as some of the portrayals do, loses that quality. And I also thought the film in general did a really good job of emphasising the claustrophobia of a murder investigation on a train, which some of the fancier modern ones with wide-angle lenses (laughs) sort of don't have that. But the final denouement scene when there's, what, 14 people in a train dining car all sat round the edge of the thing and Finney is just pacing up and down in the middle, I think made it work Really well. Um, I've never seen a stage adaptation of *Murder on the Orient Express*, but I've heard people say that it works really well on stage because it has that sense of containment. And I thought that the the film did it much better than the other ones I've seen.
1: Yes, and in a way, it was probably quite a cheap film to make. Um, I think most of the the budget would have gone on the salaries for all the stars. Mm. So it was a great film for seeing so many famous faces on screen together. Um, And also, you end up playing the wikipedia wormhole thing of whatever <laughs> happened to michael york yes exactly. and what does he do these days so you have to find out what happened to these people after after the film or how did sean connery end up in this film mm. but anyway um we also recently played um the board game called orient mm-hmm. uh, murder on the orient express or just called orient, orient express, express i think I think, I think yeah. it's not uh, not an official no. um, Christie board game and therefore is called orient express Um, Some people of course come to detective fiction through their great love of Cluedo. Mm. Uh, I was wondering whether you were ever a fan of detective fiction board games and whether they even work as a concept in your mind.
0: So my family did not own a full-size set of Cluedo, but we had Travel Cluedo, which was this tiny postcard-sized board and tiny, tiny little cards and little plastic things, which we attempted to play a few times, but it was just too small, and we did not really understand what was going on, and therefore I formed this negative impression of Cluedo, because mostly of the tiny board. I think I then later played it on the proper full-size version when I was at university, and did really enjoy it but it was maybe a bit late for me to form a kind of nostalgic attachment to it and i was already into reading the the genre anyway and there'll be more on that after the break in history's secret heroes helena bonham carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from world war ii this is a series that tells the tales from the second world war that are unjustly less well known than the oft-repeated histories of that time Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use. And I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds.
1: By implication of what you've just said then, did you come to detective fiction through the books or through TV? What came first?
0: Through the books... And through just random chance of being on holiday with my family in a and b and having read all the books I'd taken with me and just got something off the shelf. And it happened to be the Miss Marple short story collection, the Tuesday Night Club, also called The 13 Problems, or sometimes Miss Marple and The 13 Problems. And that is a collection of the Miss Marple short stories that Christy wrote before she wrote the first full-length Novel, Murder at the Vicarage, the first Miss Marple novel. And that was actually the perfect introduction because they're short stories, you read them quickly, and you, it doesn't really matter that the characters aren't very developed because they're just these little intellectual puzzles that are talked about rounder, sort of after dinner, sitting round the fire type thing. And yeah, I really enjoyed enjoyed that while on holiday at the time i think i was maybe 11 or 12 and i got all my books from the library i had a very uh, regular visiting the library one day off one day a week after school changing my stack of books for the next stack of books and of course the library had loads of agatha christie so having enjoyed this one book on holiday i then just started taking every single one that the library had until i'd read all of the ones that they had and then i was starting to branch out further from there really
1: So at your parents' house in your childhood bedroom, you still got a lot of detective novels on the shelves then, which presumably give you an insight into the young Caroline and what you were reading. Mm -hmm. There are all the Falco books. Yes,
0: I was very into the Lindsay Davis Roman detectives yes. and i do like historical detective fiction this isn't actually something i've really talked about on the podcast because ha- i haven't found a good way of doing it in an episode yet but yeah I, I do really enjoy cad file and falco and are there other ones they must have read other ones like that as well that yeah that sort of genre
1: so there was certainly at one point then an interest in historical fiction and detective fiction and the overlap between mm. the two
0: well, you know, my favourite book is the one about the Woolpack. <laughs> yes,
1: the Woolpack, which is uh, sitting on the shelf in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, of course, Falco is the great Austrian 80s pop star, <laughs> but I have occasionally heard them on the radio mm-hmm. and they do sound strangely like, um, I was going to say Cadfile in Fancy Dress, which, of course, Cadphile is, fan- <laughs> is poro in Fancy Dress as yeah. it is. And poro now is, um, I don't know... Uh, fancy dress for fans of contemporary police uh, yeah. procedural or something
0: well you could argue that all of these things are just sherlock holmes in fancy dress you know that
1: and sherlock Holmes himself wore a lot of fancy dress yes right? <laughs> as you all know from any student party <laughs> um good so have you also then uh, thought about writing a detective novel um several listeners have asked this They want to know what type of uh, detective novel or mystery novel, maybe I'm um, getting my terms wrong there. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Mystery slash crime slash detective fiction. Would you ever attempt that or would you now be wary of doing so because of all your um, years reading the experts?
0: Well, you know this because you live with me that I talk about this fairly regularly and do nothing about it which I think is probably fairly typical for dedicated readers of mysteries. I think if I were ever to actually attempt it seriously I would probably want to go back to my teenage love of historical detective fiction. I think somehow that feels more possible to my brain than writing something contemporary I guess because i don't read very much contemporary stuff I don't really feel like I have the right to contribute to it and yes I think it would would be difficult for me because everything would feel unoriginal I think I would really battle with trying to feel like I wasn't just copying someone else just because of having read so many different whodunit scenarios Um, maybe that's the wrong way to approach it maybe you know I could write the identical plot to a different writer, but I would still do it in my way and maybe it would be enjoyable that way. But yes, I think I would really struggle with that.
1: And if you're doing a historical fiction um, approach, that requires quite a lot of research. Would you be up for that? And is that part of the joy, do you think, of writing detective fiction for people who now maybe are writing them today, but setting them in the 30s, that it requires you sitting in the public library?
0: well I think to answer that second part first I think a big part of the reason people do it now is mobile phones that um I thought um Maureen Johnson who I had on the podcast a few months ago uh, who writes YA detective fiction set in the modern day but with a very strong golden age uh, vibe to it she said that she spends so much of her time trying to work out how her characters are going to ditch their phones so that her plots can actually take off Because, you know, she's writing about teenagers in the 2020s and most of the scenarios that she puts them in could be answered with, we'll just call someone. And obviously she wants to be more interesting than that. So I think a lot of the people setting things back in time is just because it was easier. Less forensics, uh, you know, no GPS, all these things that make golden age style mysteries more difficult. And then in terms of research, I actually think the reason that I instinctively gravitate towards something historical is because I would the research would make me feel comfortable it would make me feel like I was adding something whereas I'm not especially confident with just pulling things out of my brain and going I think you should have to pay money for this I would feel like I'd done genuine work if I'd had to research it
1: so let's move on I've got uh, some quickfire questions, okay, because some listeners have asked uh, your favorites, and so I've got a few uh, speedy favorites for you. To start off with then your favorite female detective.
0: I think I have to say Harriet Vane. This will not be a surprise to most listeners, but yes, Harriet Vane from Dorothy Elsa's novels.
1: Your favorite location in a detective novel?
0: I think the Scotland parts in The Singing Sands by Josephine Tay because there's both a sort of lowland, highland, mainland Scotland location and then he also goes on a trip to a Hebridean island.
1: The most unconvincing of uh, murders or detections that you've come across as in, ah oh, yes, I can see someone drank a cup of tea therefore it was him, he murdered him <laughs> on that specific <laughs> moment on that day three years years ago.
0: Oh I don't know if i can think of a specific instance but i feel like marjorie allingham gets a bit lax with that kind of thing later on in her canon she was never i think trying to do the whole fa- fair play thing in quite the way the others were but there's definitely some ones later on where campion will just casually be like oh i can see some fingerprints they're yours right which doesn't feel fully in the the spirit of the thing
1: so who is your favourite Poirot in terms of TV, film, stage, potentially?
0: I've never seen a Poirot play on stage, actually. Uh, Christy famously cut him out of when she adapted them. So it's only other people's adaptations and Black Coffee. Um, favourite Poirot? I really like Peter Ustinov.
1: I can see the death threats um heading your way now and people unfollowing you on twitter because you're one of the the ustinov gang
0: i know i'm supposed to say david Suchet, and he is really good you know he's almost like the kind of gold standard but i really enjoy the peter ustinov films i think they're fun
1: so which is your favorite agatha christie novel
0: Mm. do i have to pick one it's really hard
1: yes that's the point (laughs) of the question
0: (laughs) I will say A Murder is Announced.
1: Which is your favourite Dorothy L Sayers?
0: Gordy Knight.
1: Which is your favourite murder?
0: Just full full stop. (laughs) The favourite. So the way that someone was murdered.
1: Anything you like. Best way of doing it. Best (laughs) person because you dislike them the most. And they most (laughs) deserve to be murdered. Most ludicrous.
0: Okay, I'm going to say a... It's not one particular, but it's a, a genre of murder, shall we say. Which is... Kind of heath robinson murder booby traps there's a good one in overture to death by Naomi marsh which i think I, I can say this without it being a spoiler because it's in the sort of first few chapters of the book where someone has rigged a piano so that when you put the pedal down and they knew what piece the victim was going to play so they knew at what point they would put the pedal down there's a gun inside the piano that then fires and hits them in the chest and they die. Uh, so, yes, I, I enjoy that kind of absurd contrived machine.
1: So, which is your favourite animal in a detective novel?
0: I think it probably has to be Bob the Dog in Dumb Witness by Agatha Christie, the iconic fox terrier.
1: And which is your favourite clergyman? <laughs> Such a strange question. I can think of loads. There are loads.
0: (laughs) There are loads, it's true. I can't remember any of their names. Can I say, collectively, I like all the clergymen in Close Quarters by Michael Gilbert, which is basically every character is a clergyman. It's a murder mystery set in the cathedral close at Salisbury.
1: So were most detective novelists of the Golden Age happy people, do you think?
0: I think it varied in so much as it does in the in the general population, or I don't know that they were necessarily any happier or unhappier than writers as a cohort. Um, you have examples of people like Anthony Barclay, for instance, who was, I think, quite a kind of dark, moody, troubled person. And then someone like Gladys Mitchell, who was a teacher and always, until she retired, a kind of part-time writer, She was, I think, quite cheery with a full and active career and life and doesn't, in anything I've read about her, come across as someone who was particularly self-absorbed or inclined towards depressive thoughts or anything like that. So I don't think it's necessarily possible to talk about them as as a cohort like that. But yeah, I would say... They probably have the same inclinations that writers in general have, which is towards sort of self-involvement, self-criticism, and a, a general sense of feeling isolated and misunderstood.
1: Right. So that wasn't quite how I imagined, say, Agatha Christie or um, Dorothy L. Sayers. But
0: L. You know. Sayers was definitely, I think, very self-critical Right. and quite uh, inclined to um, underestimate her own her own work, especially when she was younger. Um, I think later she, you know, gained more confidence as she became successful. But the, there's lots of letters and so on from her to her friends, where she's sort of saying, "Do you think this is any good? Or do you think this is a good idea? I don't think it is." You know, she's always preempting, and like the fact that she and her friends called their writing group at university the Mutual Admiration Society the whole idea was they called it that because they didn't want anyone else to call it that first they thought they were going to be criticized for just you know um hyping each other up and it not being a properly intellectual activity um so they thought if we call ourselves that then no one can accuse us of being that which i think is quite a defensive posture to adopt rather than just saying we want to have a writing group it'll be fun we'll encourage each other
1: so final question then of your golden age detective novelists, which of them is most likely to get a job with the police as a detective today?
0: (laughs) The writers or their detectives? The writers. The writers. I think probably Agatha Christie because...
1: The younger uh, Agatha Christie. The younger
0: Agatha Christie because she was quite an expert on poisons and chemicals and so on. You know, she had that whole part of her life where she trained as a dispenser in the first world war and then retrained for the second world war and she kept up correspondence into the 50s and 60s with sort of chemical experts she was i think quite interested and an and expert so i think in that sense she would be quite a good maybe expert witness or um, a technical consultant or so something so she wouldn't like that. be a
1: detective as such which of them would get a job actually solving crimes
0: um oh i don't know I don't know if any of them would be any good. I mean, Dorothy L. Sayers tried, famously. She and her husband tried, they went over to France and tried to solve the nurse Daniel's disappearance um, in the 30s because her husband uh, was writing about it as a journalist and she thought, well, I'm a detective fiction writer, I'll go too. And they didn't get anywhere with it. Um,
1: Were any detective novelists murdered?
0: Oh, they must have been. Not any of the well-known ones, I don't think.
1: So I think we'd better come to an end, but we've got one last question from a listener, which is, uh, if it's not mystery novels, what is your next favourite genre?
0: I feel it would be slightly cheating to say sort of historical mystery novels, but I do really like those. I think the other genre of book that I was really into as a teenager and could have followed through into adulthood, but didn't so much was science fiction. I did used to read a lot of science fiction and fantasy particularly things to do with time travel when I was in my teens and I do still have a few books from that time that I revisit every so often but I haven't really kept up with or explored it in more detail but I could I could have seen that happening
1: Right I think we had better end so It's dinner time It's dinner time uh, the dog needs to be fed and walked So thank you very much Caroline Crampton <laughs> for being here in your usual armchair today and i hope listeners haven't been too put off by having to listen to me asking the questions (laughs) and uh normal service will resume in the next episode don't worry this isn't a new thing um so thank you very much farewell and don't have nightmares
0: This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It Book Club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.